A new series of Fry's English Delight with Stephen Fry and some genuinely colourful language. It is odd and interesting to be talking about colour on the radio. Uh, An after-lunch chat with David Hockney. No, because I think, actually, if you were on television with some colour, would, would we all be seeing it the same anyway? Yes, exactly. Um, it's uh, wonderful to think of hundreds of thousands of people out there, and if we both say the word... Um, I don't know, turquoise. Yeah. What is in people's minds? Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit different. Something's yes. rising up in yeah, their head. I mean, we're all on our own, aren't we? That's the coffee. It seems to be. Yes, it is. You're always getting back to that. Remember, uh, it was Dr Goebbels who very early on, like 1933, realised that radio wouldn't be that good for propaganda. Film would be better because in film, everybody saw the same thing. Yeah. On radio, they didn't. Very, Very good. perceptive. Which it? makes it strange to be talking especially about colour, where even in real life we can't be sure we're That's seeing it, the same yeah. thing. So, so it's perhaps it's better on radio. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of sums up the task ahead. Colour is subjective, emotive, personal. Its relationship with language is shall we say, at the very least, problematic. I love the, that standard um, oil paint vocabulary, you know, cadmium red, yellow ochre, viridian. Yeah, painters would. Yeah. Uh, no, viridian, I used to call it Mexican green. It's a colour you yeah. see in Mexico a right. great deal. You can see walls painted viridian. Yes. Yeah. And, and Oscar Wilde's favourite word in all of language was vermilion. Vermilion. He liked to dwell on it. <laughs> he used to say it for pleasure. Um, Very good, I see that. <laughs> it's just a scheme you set up, in a way. I mean, uh, remember what was Picasso said, if you haven't got any red, you use blue. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Always like that, yeah. Uh, meaning you can convince them that's red as well. I mean, if it depends on where you use yes. it, it? Yes. Uh, we all see colour a bit differently. I mean, we must do, I think. Uh, that's the great mystery, isn't it? The reason we don't all see the same things is we're seeing with memory, isn't it? And my memory is different yes. to yours, and memory is now. Yes. Meaning it has to be now. So... Um, we never see the same things, quite. But if we don't all see exactly the same things, if it's all a bit subjective, how on earth did we ever start working out words to go with colours? Meet Magnus, who is two. <gasps> what colour is that? Yellow. 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 Good boy. Try pressing this. <laughs> what colour is that? Now, Magnus already knows all about colour. Has done for a considerable time. Dr Owen Wilson, child psychologist. Children, before they can speak, can distinguish different colours. And they can see and show preference for certain colours. Research has been done here locally at uh, Surrey University by Dr Anna Franklin, and she found that babies aged four to nine months actually can show colour preference. And so she was able to show babies comparing colours and see which one they turned to as, as a preferred one. And uh, they very clearly uh, had a huge preference for red and blue, and purple. Um, and then coming a fairly close fourth is orange. 
Um, and then down the yellow, green, and the most boring colours of babies are pink and brown. They're pre-verbal. So before you can talk, you can see colours. They're not categorising colours because we help them do that. The culture that they're born into will then start labelling colours. Colour is just one big spectrum. And our categorisation of choosing a name for colours uh, is simply a line artificially drawn. You, you just imagine a rainbow and you think, well, where shall I draw the lines? Arbitrary, in other words. And culture's influence on where we draw the lines and how we make the words is inestimable, as we'll learn. But then, so is nature's influence. What's happening with Magnus here is that he's learning the principles behind parts of speech. Purple rectangle. Purple rectangle. Good boy. Clever thing. Nobody says, oh, here, learn your adjectives. They know it's a describing word. We'll say to them, it's a car. Go and get your blue car. They don't mistakenly, unless they've got a difficulty with their language, they don't mistakenly call it a blue. They will say a blue one, and we'll often use that. Go and find the blue one, and they'll understand that. So they see it in a position as a describing word and recognise it as an adjective. Now, to those of you who, having read the Radio Times, were hoping for a programme called colourful language to be all about effing and blinding, apologies for any disappointment caused, though it's dashed significant to note that the kind of language that turns the air blue, the kind for which we would have to get a special green light from the BBC, well, it's like a red rag to a bull to many of us. Imagine a world where the only experience you have of colour is the language people use to describe it. This used to be the world of Neil Harbison, who lives in Spain. He is, or rather was, that rarest of things, totally monochromatic. He saw, but with no colour at all, a man frustrated by the emotional descriptions of colour others used. All of my life, people have described colour in, in words, and it's really, really, really impossible to understand um, it's it's so strange when people describe a color because it it feels like they're describing uh, a person or a, a feeling more than what it really is physically. Mr. Harbison's story prompts a question from Mr. Hockney. How do you know he saw? Yes, monochrome. Quite. It's a very good point because if he saw in monochrome, he he sees in shades of grey. It's because he you could... only saw in monochrome. Would you know what color was? Exactly. But he knew that colours could be defined using scientific measurement of the visible spectrum, and he adapted that measurement so he too could have a special language of colour. I realised that colour has actually got a frequency, but it's a frequency that we can't hear. When I went to university, I went to a cybernetics lecture. That's when I talked to Adam Montandon, who gave the lecture, and I, I explained to him that I could only see in black and white, and if he thought we could create something so that I could perceive colour. And that's how we started working on this project, to hear colour. Very simple. Webcam, a computer, and a pair of headphones. And then he created this software that would transform any colour in front of me into a tone. Since 2004, I have it attached to my head, and it hasn't been removed since then. 
purely invented colour language so that Neil can hear colour and be part of the complex world of colour language, in which artists use what seems a special kind of vision. I had friends when I was driving them around East Yorkshire, sometimes I'd just point out and ask them, what colour is the road when I would yes. see it as kind of violet or something, because it changes with uh, the sky. But one or two of them said they'd never even think of what the colour was without the question. Yes. On the other hand, I would think of it because you're making pictures. When you ask your friend what colour is the road, you're not asking them to get out uh, um, uh, 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 some paints yeah. and show you. So you have to use a word, and that word can be shocking, because to use the word violet of a road is shocking to someone who hasn't considered it. Or never really looked. In, in your head, do you, do you, can you recall that you would say, oh, oh it's a sort of green there, isn't that well, you, surprising? You, you, you or know, uh, are they warm or cool? You, you th yes, start thinking things right. like that. And you're not naming them. No, you're not, actually. I mean... Only in the sense, well, I'll pick that tube or that tube, yeah. and you look at the name on the tube or something. All the same, we need to put names on tubes. Colours need words, very early on in the development of our language. Olwen Wilson. Once we've got a name for a colour, and this research is done by Dr Franklin at Surrey University, once we've got a name, that produces a category that's in that name and two categories that are next to each other we can distinguish between them so for example we distinguish between blue and green whereas the children in north namibia don't distinguish between blue and green blue and green is one color at the boundary between blue and green once it's got a name for us we can spot the difference between blue we can search and in a search task and find it very quickly we've almost grown a space between blue and green at that boundary that we can be quite clear that's blue that's green um, whereas children who don't have that boundary wouldn't have that effect they don't have that category effect this shows that their language is affecting their performance because in Dr Franklin's research, she found that the children were searching for things in a different way because of their name of a colour. So once they'd got the language of a name for a colour, it actually affected how fast they could spot things. And so language actually affects your performance uh, and the way and how quickly you can see something. But how did that colour-naming world evolve? Why did it evolve differently in North Namibia, or Greece, or China? Earlier, we heard about a conceptual leap by two-year-old Magnus. Here's another one from 49-year-old William. William Ewart Gladstone, Prime Minister-in-waiting, who, while he was waiting, penned an enormous, wide-ranging and largely derided study of his hero, Homer. Gladstone devoted a good deal of his enormous energy into looking at one aspect of Homer's writing. Colour. That our own country has some special aptitude in this respect, we may judge from the comparatively advantageous position which the British painters have always held as colourists among other contemporary schools. Nothing seems more readily understood and retained by very young children among us than the distinctions between the principal colours. Less understood, though, is how humans first turned these distinctions into language. 
Gladstone spotted an important clue. Guy Deutscher, Honorary Research Fellow at the School of Linguistics and Cultures at Manchester University. Gladstone, through his very careful reading of the Iliad and Odyssey, discovered that there's something incredibly strange about the way that Homer talks about colour. And it's not just a strange term here and there. It is a systematic oddity, systematic vagueness, as he called it, and inconsistency in the way that uh, Homer talked about colours. The most famous example is, of course, the wine-dark sea to start with. Well, the sea isn't wine-dark. It doesn't have the colour of wine at all. In fact, what the, the Greek says is not wine-dark, but wine-looking. Wine-dark is already some sort of interpretation. And that's just the beginning, as Gladstone shows. So there's oxen also wine-coloured. He talks about green honey, sheep with violet wool. All the people who noticed it before just dismissed it as a case of poetic freedom. But Gladstone, by this careful analysis, said, look, if you have a strange term here and there, that might be a case of poetic freedom. But with Homer, this oddity is consistent. And, and he really shows it by going through the home. He just collected all the places where Homer talked about colours, and he showed that it, it is consistently odd, consistently strange. And more close observation by William Ewart Gladstone offered this amazing insight. How was it that Homer didn't talk about blue? Gladstone says he had the most perfect example of blue in the skies above him and in the Mediterranean Sea, and yet not once does he call his sky blue. He calls them broad and starry, and yet he doesn't have a word for blue. By the way, that word blue turns out to be problematic to this day. Remember those children in North Namibia? They don't have a word for blue either. But what did Gladstone make of Homer's oddity? Homer must have been colourblind, although Gladstone didn't even know the word colourblindness. In 1858, the phenomenon of colourblindness was not known. It was known as Daltonism to a very few specialists, but it was not known to the general public and it was not known to Gladstone, um, which makes it even more remarkable that he came up with the idea that someone would not see colours uh, consistently the way we do. Gladstone thought the human eye would develop and see more colours with practice. He thought increased colour awareness would swiftly develop from generation to generation. With hindsight, it's a stab in the dark, made in 1858, which, if you remember, was the year before the publication of Darwin's theory of evolution. But that was Gladstone's great conceptual leap unlike Magnus's, in entirely the wrong direction, unfortunately. In the field of classics, the great statesman became a laughingstock. But not to philosopher and philologist Lazarus Geiger, Guy Deutscher. Instead of dismissing what Gladstone had written, he was inspired by it and started looking at the colour descriptions in other ancient texts from other ancient cultures around the world. And, surprise, surprise he found extremely similar things there. Uh, Homer talks about green honey. The Bible talks about green gold. Homer talks about wine-looking oxen. The Bible talks about red horses and red cows. And he found similar things in ancient Indian texts, in ancient Chinese texts, even in ancient Icelandic, even in the Quran. So suddenly, what had been described as the problem of one ancient nation turned out to be a universal problem or defect in what they still thought was the eyesight of ancient 
peoples. And there was no word for blue. There's one exception, the Egyptians. So Egyptian blue, very interesting area, because the Egyptians were the first culture uh, to actually make blue synthetically. And if Now this like, expert got, uh, is not an Egyptologist, uh, not a linguist of any kind, but the relationship between words and colour are very much her business. She's Nikki Barton, head of colour marketing at Dulux Paints. And you can actually see blue being used in some Egyptian stucco paintings going right back to 1400 BC. The synthetic nature of blue was developed by the Egyptians. So the fact that the ancient Egyptians could make blue stuff and therefore coined a word for it blows a hole in this 19th century notion that the ancients saw things in a vague monotone. But wait a minute, what about the sky? Why didn't Homer have a colour for that most perpetual of Greek holiday attractions? I knew the Greeks didn't really have a word for art the way we do either. I mean, you have a different uh, view of something. Um, I didn't know about the blue, because the blue is... We know the sky is blue. William Gladstone. Here, Homer had before him the most perfect example of blue. Yet he never once so describes the sky. His sky is starry or broad or great, or iron, or copper, but it is never blue. This is an important piece of negative testimony. It's also a classic case of not being able to see the wood for the trees up which they were mistakenly barking. What would it take to show these misguided men that the ancients could see as well as you and I can? I'll tell you what, a train crash. On the night of 14th of November, 1875, two Swedish express trains collided on a single track in the line between Malmö and Stockholm. There were nine dead and many injured. After an initial inquiry, the station master was convicted of negligence and, and duly put in prison. And it would have stated that um, were it not for a real-life Sherlock Holmes, um, who happened to be a specialist in the anatomy of vision from Uppsala University, and he had an alternative theory for why the train crash happened. He thought that the driver was colorblind and perhaps mistook the red stop sign for a white go sign. He was right. And so it was that railway signal technology created a need for a more reliable understanding of color vision. This, coupled with an increasingly detailed understanding of evolution, meant that we finally understood. Homer and his contemporaries suffered not from an anatomical deficit, but a linguistic one. The reason was to do with the way words had developed, not how eyes had. So the colour palette is inspired by the sort of down-to-earth qualities of industrial heritage. Earlier, you heard That's Nicky Barton of Dulux explaining that the Egyptians were probably among the first people to make blue artificially, and in so doing created and fulfilled the need for a word for that colour. Today, Nikki and her team are continuing in the same vein, making new colours and naming them. So it could be robust mustard, 
or reclaimed mustard. Yeah, like, an, like in, a, in an old, old house, old like an mustard. antique. You know, the, the, you know if, you've got, if you've got English <laughs> mustard and it's mustard. the bit of mustard that's around the jar, the top of the jar that's gone dry. Obviously, the colour creation business has moved on a bit in the last 3,000 years, and now for every single colour invented by Dulux and every other paint company, there has to be a word or pair of words or trio of words. The colour name... And what that name means to that individual is absolutely critical in helping them visualise what that colour is going to look like and the effect of it. So, colour language, according to Ms Barton, can affect the perception of colour. Now, when a professional architect or industrial designer describes a colour, he or she conveys it through codes, industry standards. Take this, hash F3AD86. It's a kind of, well, orangey, pinky, with a bit of... Well, I'll type it in Google and have a look. Hash F3AD86. Trouble is, that kind of highly accurate language is a bit, well, colourless. On the other hand, sometimes the poets of the shade card come up with something intensely evocative that has no colour word in the name. What colours can I find here? <laughs> Bowler hat. Dusted fondant, summer surprise, twilight cinders? Twilight darker, because you're going into night, and cinders, the embers that are left on a fire, you know, what's left over. So you get to this sort of dark, uh, brownish, purple colour, which is left over, which is what the colour is. But that colour, it's a strong, deep colour. So twilight takes you into that zone. They must also have the right emotional and cultural cues. Which, in a way, takes us back to Homer and the colour of the sky. Iron. Copper. This isn't, strictly speaking, poetic licence in action. This is a reflection of the limited palette of colour names available at the time, ancient Greek cultural cues based on early mining technology. Homer had to borrow language from what was already there to paint the sky. He and other ancient peoples had very few cultural cues to colour their languages. Now we have thousands, and they're changing all the time. But go back to the very beginning of languages and those very first scarce natural cues. Guess what the first colour to get a name is in every single language. Guy Deutscher. The first colour to receive a name is always red. Anatomically, we seem to be designed to be excited by the colour red. Culturally, red is the most significant colour, certainly in simple cultures, primarily is the colour of blood. Blue is always at the end of the line, both because there are hardly any objects that are blue that you'd need to talk about if you come from a simple culture, and because technologically blue pigment is exceedingly difficult to produce. So what it shows us is that words generally, and certainly for colours, develop for very practical purposes objects that you need to talk about and you need to describe the differences between. So, red is the original bleeding baboon-bottomed berry juice bullfrightener. Green and yellow denote growth and ripeness, and blue 
Blues always last, because nature doesn't provide much of it to speak of, apart from a ubiquitous sky colour. In a way, then, we've pulled the rug from under this idea that we divide the spectrum arbitrarily when we name colours. There are no countries that have capriciously decided that grello on the broad margins of green and yellow on the spectrum is a word worth putting in the dictionary. Back now to the lovely, spacious, mysterious, unobtainable blue. Here's David Hockney on Matisse. He said uh, two kilos of blue is a lot bluer than one kilo of blue. That's really about scale. The scale of something, a bigger area of blue, is bluer than a smaller area of blue. And it is, actually. And for some reason, just as there's evidence of languages with no colour word for blue, who refer to it as green, there are also languages like Greek and Russian with two words for blue. Dean Martin. Nel blu dipinto di blu, blue painted blue. However you try and translate this lovely Italian lyric, you can't. Italians see blue the same as we do, but they say it differently. Io mi chiamo Maria e sono italiana. Va bene? E vivo a Roma. This is a little experiment. Maria here is Italian, and we've given her a colour chart to look at. Giallo, verde, arancione, blu. But Maria is truly bilingual. I'm still Maria, and I still live in Rome, and I still lived here for 50 years, but I speak English as well, so I can recognise colours in English as well, if necessary. That I would call green, that I would call yellow, um, sort of mauve, Orange, dark blue, light blue. Um, I would say in Italian, one is certainly azzurro and one is certainly blue, whereas in English, um, they're just two tones of blue, dark blue and light blue. I, I can't think of a word that would uh, identify the lighter blue with a different name. In English, to me, blue is like a firm point along which you have a darker shade or a lighter shade. Whereas in Italian you have different names which relate to sort of different ideas of the colour that you have in your head. An Italian person would certainly see these two colours as referring to two different words. And certainly different colours, yes. So does this mean Maria thinks differently or even perceives differently according to which of the two languages she's using? Um... I don't know. Nobody does. Some believe that the proverbial intelligent extraterrestrial falling out of the blue would observe of us that we all speak different dialects of the same innate language. Others say that our different and varied languages somehow affect the way we see the world. Our English delight is somehow different to Maria's Italian delizia. The discrepancies in the different colour vocabularies of different languages is just one vivid illustration. No wonder my happy heart sings 
Your love has given me wings Nel blu dipinto de blu Venite di stare lassù and you can hear more colourful conversation with Stephen Fry and David Hockney on the Radio 4 website. Fry's English Delight is a testbed production. The producer is Nick Baker.